Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 9. We are going to be taking a look tonight at, uh, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we started the warning from an eagle flying in the heavens that said, Whoa, 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 three woes were coming in the trumpet judgments of God. When we look at those trumpet judgments, we remember the things that we've been talking about as we discuss them. Because when we look at them, what we're, what we're seeing, the trumpets were used as a warning. Trumpets were used as a, how far down this road are you willing to go without repenting? Because there's worse coming. There's worse coming. It's a, it's a call. Remember last time we saw the Lord saying, you're, you're clamoring for to reject Christ is then to, re, to accept as the, the God of this age, the, the devil, who is the God of this age. And so the last trumpet was, was him opening up the pit and letting the demons out. Remember? Let the demons out, the ones who had been enchained. And he wouldn't allow the demons to kill, but they torment men for five months. And through it all, the call still is from God. Look, if you, if you go this way, if you take this road, life just keeps getting worse. If you take this road, life may still be hard. I'm not promising life won't be hard. But there's hope. There's no hope the other way. There's hope when we follow Christ, when we surrender to Him. And so we see the second woe coming tonight in uh, Revelation chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. So let's take a look at it together. It says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came from their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorcery or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this section of Scripture, Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to, to the reality, God, that all day long we have a, a God and King who reaches His hands out to a disobedient and contrary people. And I pray, Lord, that it would be our desire as we, as we recognize through this Scripture that we might hear your call. And that we might respond, Lord, we pray, God, that you would be glorified in this place and uh, teach us to hear your voice. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the second woe is come. First woe, demonic horde of locusts. 
And we see in the description, right? And we're going to see the same thing here when we look at the horses. We see in the description something that we know is not a locust, right? Locust with woman's hair and teeth like a lion. And so we're not talking about normal locusts. We're talking, and, and what happened? Remember, a fallen angel goes to the pit, has a key, opens the pit, lets him out. And we discussed the fact that that pit is where the Lord kept enchained the worst of the worst of the demons. Demons who were so far out of line, probably the ones from Genesis 6. Uh, he keeps them in chains until this period of time when God opens it up. If you don't want me, let me show you what the other looks like. And so we have that release. We have that. And through it all, through all that thing. Remember we, we, we brought up the picture of the children of Israel bitten by the, the fiery serpents. You remember? And they're in pain and they're on the ground. And so Moses says, what can we do, God? And God says, put a serpent on a pole and lift him up. And everyone who looks to that serpent will be saved. Not hard, is it? It's really not hard to, to bow a knee to the Lord. I, it was not too hard for me. I, my life was a mess. It wasn't hard to say, yeah, I, I've kind of made a mess out of things. Maybe I should let somebody else call the shots for a while. And when life is like that, really? I mean, you're in pain, dying, poison coursing through your veins, writhing on the ground, and all you have to do is look to Him? But yet, there were men in that plague who wouldn't look to the, to the bronze pole and the serpent and receive life. In the New Testament, Jesus said, that's me. If the Son of Man is lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. If we look to Him, there's salvation there. So we see in the trumpets, I think, God just calling out to, to creation. Hey, come on, man. Let's, let's just come to me. I want to save you. There's judgment day coming. We, we, we've read about it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, even leading up to judgment day, God is saying over and over and over again, come to me. You don't have, this doesn't have to be the way it goes. Come to me. This doesn't have to be the way. But we get to the end of this section of Scripture in two of the saddest verses in the Bible because it says men would not repent. They weren't willing to look to the provision in Jesus Christ. Well, let's take a look at this army he talks about. It. Verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So we see the six angel sounds. Why does he sound? Because God says... Blow your trumpet. Ultimately, what we're looking at is a sovereign control of God. We're going to see it all the way through this, because when they, when they talk about the four angels, it says that they were set for a purpose, right? For a specific day, hour. They, had a, they have a role. Ultimately, we see God. And, and the reminder that the voice is coming from the golden altar, I don't want you to forget, a couple of verses ago, remember, all the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, cried out from below the altar, How long, O Lord, until you will avenge our blood? Because the God that we serve, guys, is a God of love, and a God of mercy, and a God of compassion, and a God of justice. And He will have justice. And if it won't be through the, the substitutional sacrifice of His Son, then it's going to come from His wrath poured out on we who cannot pay. There, but there will be. 
There will be a day of reckoning. And so he tells them, sound. Part of it, the reminder, right, of the golden altar, is that part of this is a response to the martyrs. In verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now we have the same thing again. Okay, just so we can keep this simple. Good angels aren't bound. You with me? Right? We don't chain up the good guys, usually. We don't say, oh, if they're good guys, you don't have to chain them, do you? You just say, I'll call on you guys in a certain time. Just hang out here. But these guys, these guys were bound. And they have a, a particular purpose. Something that they're good at. Now, when we look at history, when we look at the history of the nation of Israel, there are many times where God uses uh, armies, invading armies from other areas to, to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. Right? Can we think of any? we got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines a time or two. Right? You guys get what I'm saying? Where, where God would use invading armies as part of His uh, means of, of uh, judgment on His people. Judgment for the things that they had done. And so we have here four angels, a voice from under the throne. This is God speaking, saying we're going to let those four angels go. Again, it's not the good angels that are that are bound. It's, it's the evil. We've talked about it. Second Peter two four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains and gloomy darkness to be kept until the time of judgment. So who'd they put on chains? Bad angels, right? These are fallen angels, angels who would not keep their first estate. It says in Jude 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's a time. God says, I, I got him in chains. Some of them are going to maybe are in chains until judgment day. Some of them are part of judgment day. Some of them are part. Letting them loose. So you have these angels, they're chained where? The Bible tells us in the Euphrates, the great river Euphrates. The division between Near East and Far East. Traditionally, the Euphrates River. So we have these four angels. Now what is, their, what is, the, what is the preparation? What are they for? Look what it says. Verse 15, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. So there's a precise moment, right? This is not random, guys. This is not just uh, random occurrences. There are things in the Bible that God decrees. God has decreed, at this point, one-third of humanity to die. Now, when God decrees that one-third of humanity dies, is that the same thing as one-third of humanity going to hell? We've got to remind ourselves of that sometimes. Because the reality is, Sometimes the, the only way to get somebody close at all to a point where they're willing to look to the Lord for salvation is to take them to, through that kind of craziness. How many guys you know have deathbed confessions waiting to die in the final moments that all of a sudden all the tough leaves? And there's a moment. And even in that... Even in this judgment, you can see the mercy of God, because the mercy of God, ultimately, God says, I want to save, I don't want to destroy. And if you lose your physical life on earth and gain eternity in heaven forever, really, what have you lost? 
Not much. But it's hard for us to see things that way, isn't it? It's hard for us to, to comprehend that. So we know these angels, specific time, this is a decree from God. That this day will happen. There's not like some special thing you can do that make, will make this day not come. That day will come. On the day, the hour, the year that God says, I don't know when it is. I don't need to know when it is. I just know that it's a decree of the Lord. So ultimately, who's in charge? Those four angels? No, God's in charge. God is in control. God is sovereign. So they're going to be released to kill a third of mankind. Again, part of the answer to the martyrs. You killed my children. You killed my people. I'm going to bring that judgment. It's no different than how God treated the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. When he saw the, the nation of Israel continuing to follow down roads of disobedience. Their disobedience wasn't just they didn't show up at church on Sunday. They didn't go to church on Sunday, by the way. But it wasn't about that. What was it, what was it about? It was about them uh, sacrificing their children to idols. It was about them um, worshiping demons. It was about them stealing from one another, murdering one another. It was about their covetousness. It was, And it was getting so rampant that God can't reach the point of redemption short of bringing that judgment and i don't know on that day when we stand before god if we're able to see when god says you know i moved in this way and i brought this calamity upon the nation of israel and as a result you know let's say a random number ten thousand people uh reached out to me in their final moments and have eternity with me just like the people laying on the ground with poison coursing through their veins and all they have to do is look to the pole to the bronze serpent and be saved so we we have to keep in mind that holds true all the way through scripture and god is right and just when he does it because what are the wages of sin we either believe it or we don't we all know what it says do you really believe that? Do you really believe your sin warrants death in your life? Most of us don't. But that's how God sees it. Because when you sin, if God was to close his eyes, what picture does he see? He sees a picture of Jesus on a cross, skin filleted off his body, bleeding, and he says, you know, you're just stomping through my son's blood like it's nothing. And last I checked, there's not one of us that that wouldn't offend. Is there? Is there one of us who wouldn't be offended by someone who, who disrespected the death of our own child for, or in, in the case of saving or helping someone else? How much more a holy and just God and a perfect son The Bible says that Jesus freely, God freely gave us Jesus. The greatest treasure he had. He freely gave it. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? Everything we need is in him. Everything we need. To reject that is the greatest dishonor someone can give to God. 
And, and so when we, when we look at it, he says, this is what's going to happen. Now, when this occurs, on that day, when a third of, man can, when a third of mankind dies, from the beginning of the first seal until this trumpet, sixth trumpet, a little more than half of the population of the earth when we began is gone. So that's a big deal, right? You're going to be able to miss that? You're going to be able to wonder, I wonder if we're in the tribulation. I don't think you're going to have to do that. I think you'll go, oh, wow. Now, again, my eschatology says we get ringside seats, but I can tell you the tribulation is not happening now. There's plenty of people still on the world. It looks a little dicey, but there's plenty of people. Well, let's look what, what happens next. What's the characteristics of this army? Look at verse 16. The number of the mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. So 10,000 times 10,000 times 2. This is where we come up with a number. Maybe some of your Bibles have it written in there. A 200 million man army. Big army. Big, yeah? Big army. That's a lot of people. A lot of people that, that, are, that are coming. Now there's a lot of ways to look at this army, guys. And, and I'm not sure. I kind of vacillate back and forth. But most of the time... I see this army again as a, a spiritual army that is um, fallen angels moving against mankind. And I'll, I'll kind of explain why. But a lot of people disagree with me. A lot of people see it as a, the kings of the east. Later on, we're going to talk about the kings of the east and their move against the Antichrist. But a lot of people see this as a, as a picture of that. That the kings of the east are coming down, crossing the Euphrates. One of the judgments we'll see in the bold judgments is the drying up of the Euphrates River so that the way for the kings of the east can be made to come. There's no question the kings of the east come and they do do battle with the Antichrist. I'm just not convinced that that's what this is talking about. We just had an obvious demonic horde in the locusts released from the, the pit or the abyss. And now I just want you to look at the characteristics of this one. we got a big army, 200 million, which is, you know, that's that's really... Bigger than anything we have today. Now, there are two nations in the world today who, who could probably muster an army like this, although they don't today have a standing army that big. So, China and India. Those two nations, there's enough population in those two nations to, to uh, um, produce a 200 million man army. So, it, you know, who knows? You know, the, the interesting thing when you consider that, nobody really thinks of India as a threat. And I, I'm not trying to say India is a threat. But India uh, has a lot of uh, Hinduism. They worship three million different gods. The Bible tells us when we worship idols, what are we worshiping? Demons. What happens if God just starts letting all the demons loose? And those demons get let loose in the middle of a nation that has more than 200 million people. What if a great portion of those 200 million people are the lower caste, shunned and hated by everyone else? And what if in the midst of that, a, a charismatic guy possessed by a demon, what have you, challenges the people to move? Could it happen? Yeah, for sure. And the pieces are there. The funny thing is, all I know, when we talk about eschatology and end times, no matter what we do, we're going to be wrong some. The best, you know where my, my prophecy is perfect? My, all my interpretation of prophecy is perfect when it's already happened. When it hasn't happened yet, 
and it doesn't really descriptively tell me, you know, what's going on, I think, man, but I can see how it could. And I could see how this move or this, but, but here's my problem, and this is why I think we're probably looking at another demonic horde, because it says they're going to kill a third of mankind around the world. And I don't know how you do that with one army. Now, you send them a lot of different places, but if we learn anything from history, you don't fight wars on multiple fronts. Traditionally, now, if you had 200 million, maybe you can. But in my mind, it would be much simpler uh, for this to be demonic. But let's look at the description again. And this is how I saw the horses. Now, he's he's saying horses and men on horses. So he seems to be describing an army. But there's something about those horses, right? Are these normal? I saw horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. Now that's not like any horse I've ever seen. I'm afraid of horses, but I've never seen a horse like that. I don't like horses. (laughs) Barry tried to teach me to ride a horse and we decided several years ago that that is the biggest waste of time to try to teach me how to ride a horse. I spent more time on my ear trying to ride a horse than I did anything else. I prefer horsepower that I can control. I turn the throttle, the horse goes. I pull a lever, the horse stops. Way easier. But them horses didn't look like this. They don't have fire coming out of their face. Their heads don't look like a lion. You seen a horse that has a lion's head and a tail made out of snakes? Now, a lot of people, when they look at this, here's what they do. And, 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 and you know, how many of you guys have, have read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey? So if you remember, when you go through that, Hal Lindsey, what did Hal Lindsey see in all this? Helicopters. It was in Vietnam era. You got uh, the, the Huey helicopters. Uh, they, they, they have death that comes out of their mouth as a machine gun that's shooting. Uh, from their tails, they hurt people. So they, he has all this descriptive, uh, description of modern warfare. And maybe, I, I, I mean, no, I don't know that anybody can say definitively, but that would certainly be a strange way to, to look at it. I think, I, I think John would have given us more clues that it's somehow a, a contraption of man. But that's not what he says. He knows what a horse is, don't he? When's the last time a helicopter looked like a horse? Oh, you know, the other day I saw a helicopter horse. Yeah, I know. It don't look like that. Uh, you know, I might have called it a something that flew or something. You know, what I'm, you get what I'm saying. So that, so I think John's just describing a vision that he sees, and the vision may be depicting those kind of events. It may depict a real army, but in my mind, because of the kind of things that have happened in the trumpet judgments, I think this is just a lot of demonic activity that's going on. Now, you can disagree with me, and we can both disagree and be okay, because neither one of us are going to be able to prove anything one way or the other. But when we look at it, this is why I see that, because of the description. Horses breathing fire, and smoke, and, uh, and sulfur coming out of their mouth. And the men, the people riding on the horses, they're wearing breastplates. Right? We got, we got men on horses. The horses are wearing breastplates, the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. And then it says uh, um, this number, this humongous number. Remember, when we talk about the number, the number 10,000 in Greek was the highest reckoning you could go. 
So for a Greek person to say 200 million, they would have never used those words. But they would have said ten thousands and times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. We hear that kind of language in the Bible all the time, which means a humongous group of people. And he says, he didn't count them. What does he say? I didn't count them. What did he say? I heard, I heard them say the number. I heard them say the number of what's going on. So what do we have? First Peter 5.8 says that we're to be careful of the devil. Why? It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, does what? Prowls around like a... Roaring lion. What do these what do these horses look like? They got heads of a what? Heads of a lion, right? Hurting, killing, destroying uh, a third of the population. It just fits with me in line with uh, the the attitude, ultimately the the devil's av- attitude for the world. Now, when we look at this army, there's lots of possibilities. So I don't want you to just think it can only be a demonic army. It can be an army uh, infused and empowered by demons. Some people see this army as the invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So if you ever have time, if you read in, in, in your Bibles, the, there's an invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that as far as we know to date, we can't point a finger on historically and say this is when that happened. It's an invasion of the nation of Israel. When Israel is caught with surprise, they, they aren't able to defend themselves, and God delivers them. God's going to deliver them supernaturally. And it says that the fires from their equipment, their, their army, the fires from their equipment burning will burn for seven years. Now, at the time of, of John, something burning for seven years... Seems like kind of a stretch, right? That'd be a lot of work. Today, just ask the folks who live around Chernobyl how long something can burn. You guys remember Chernobyl? You got, you, you know that's still burning, right? Still. That's not going to stop burning. That's not going to stop. So the idea of something burning like that in the modern age, makes sense. Now here's another interesting thing. You guys read about it. Ezekiel 38 and 39. I won't spend a lot of time on it. But there are specific burial crews who walk through with special equipment, finding the dead bodies, marking them with a flag. And then later on, a burial crew comes in behind them to bury the, the people. That seems a little weird in the ancient world too. But if you're dealing with some kind of a nuclear exchange or every you know I, I can only imagine all the enemies of israel coming to nuke israel and god just setting off all their nukes on them and then special burial parties coming through to mark the radioactive bodies and special disposal crews to take care of it so ezekiel 38 and 39 it's interesting now nobody knows some people say that battle is going to be the battle that starts the the tribulation period that that battle is going to be the precursor to the rapture. That that battle is this battle. That, you know, we don't know. But it's, it's an interesting thing to be looking at. Again, when we look at prophecy, prophecy looking forward, our eyes don't work so good. Right? When it, when it happens, we're going to be really good at looking back and going, look at there. It happened. And this is, this is how it came together. So some people see that. Others... Uh, tie this battle together with the Battle of Armageddon. So, you know, um, I, I, I'm not trying to say... I, I don't think those two fit as well. 
Uh, I think the natural reading, in my opinion, that the natural reading, I, I read as demons. There's a reason for that, because the plagues that they bring, they bring death to a third of the world's population, but how does it happen? Look, by these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. So you have these horses, like almost like a demonic horse with a lion's head that have fire and smoke and sulfur that comes out of their mouths that is in some way poison that kills a third of mankind. Now, if this is a de- demonic army, then oceans can't keep them away, right? Last I checked, demons don't have a hard time crossing the water or getting through a locked door or going wherever they want to go. And if... As they're riding out, John sees them all grouped up, this huge horde. But as they're riding through the world, can't you imagine just riding through? People don't even see them. And people are just dropping. They're dropping. Why? Because of that, that horse that just passed by that they never saw. That demon horse that breathed fire, smoke, or sulfur, and it killed them. And they die. And a, a third of the world is is going to go in this way. And because of that, it just seems supernatural to me. Look at verse 18. It says, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So the smoke, fire, and sulfur they breathe kills, and the tails bite and wound. So it's not everybody that the horse runs by, dies. Some are wounded, some are killed. In all of that, still you have, I think, the mercy of God because you have opportunity. When all that stuff's going on, there's a, there, there is a sense. The heart of man, a heart of man in rebellion against God is able to turn to God. I sat on a couch in Midway Park dying. And my wife dying, and everybody dying, my kids are going to die, everything's over. And in that moment, all I wanted in the entire world was God. Now, I could have just said I'd be mad at God because all this is going on in my life. But that does what? That makes my life better? Oh, yeah, that's stupid. That's what that is. But I reach out to the only one who has an answer for me. The only one who could put my marriage back together. The only one who could bring life from death. The only one who could put all the pieces back together in my life. The only one is God. The heart of a rebellious man can turn to God. Can call upon His name. And can be saved. It is simply the mercy of God that gives man an opportunity to do so. And it's a mercy he doesn't have to give. But because He is good, because He is loving and compassionate, He does. He does provide that opportunity. So they cause this incredible harm to mankind, right? Then look at the judgment does not change a heart of man. Look what it says in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and stone, and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. The Bible says that God commands all men everywhere this thing. What is this thing? He commands all men to repent and believe. 
You got to let go of sin if you're going to hold on to God. You got to turn it loose. And so these guys won't do it. They don't want to let go of those things. They don't want to let go of the worship of demons. First Timothy chapter four, verse one says this. Now, the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, in the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and the teachings of demons. Paul said that when you worship an idol, you worship a false religious system or a false god. You're worshiping a real entity. It's not a god, but it's a real entity. If, like I said, if you're in the middle of a nation that, has, that boasts three million different deities and gods, all that means to me is there's a whole lot more demonic activity in that land than there are in others. But if you worship falsely, if you worship that which is not true, the Bible says that's, that's a demon. What's he say here? They won't let go of their demons. They won't let go of their false religious systems. We're going to see the judgment of Babylon in chapter 18. And that's the same thing with them. They, that, that false religious system and rebellion against God, rejecting the truth of the word, they are holding fast to a demon and they won't let go. Even though that's the very thing that's killing them. Now, is that weird to you? How about this? How many people you know holding on the drug with both hands even though that's the thing that's killing them? It's not all that weird. We do it all the time. Mankind does that all the time. How many times do you see a man or woman destroying their life holding on to the very thing that's destroying their life? Just clinging on to it with both hands. Because they don't want to let it go. They don't want to let it go. So they're holding on. It says they don't want to let go of their idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, this is what Paul says. Paul says, we need to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You catch that? Sometimes we always think idolatry only has to do with those people back then with their little gods. But what were their gods made of? Gold, silver, precious things, wood, stone. Our gods are the same way today. They just have Harley Davidson on the side. But that, I mean, no. Because Paul said covetousness is idolatry. Does it have to be? I'm not saying just because you have stuff, you're worshiping false gods, but it can be, can it? Can we worship our stuff? Absolutely we can. Absolutely we can. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what would, what do we have that I won't let go of? What do I have that I wouldn't let go of if God asked me to let go of this? Put this down. Set it aside. I t- I'm almost afraid to say it because the last time I said it, I got hit by a meat truck and God took away my Harley, you remember? So I've been here seven years, so six years ago, I came here on a Harley Davidson, rode it all the way to Buell, Idaho, and I sat on a Wednesday night and I said, look, we got to be wary of idolatry. Even if God told me he wants that Harley, he can have it. I'm saying the same thing. If God wants a Harley, he can have it. Then he hit me with a meat truck. So I'm hoping that's not the way he takes a Harley the next time. 
But it's his. If he wants it, there's nothing I got he can't have. But it's not wrong to have it. It's just wrong to worship it. It's just wrong that it has you. And it, it doesn't have to be something like that. It can be something small that has you. Right? We can have no money and still be a slave to money. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big bank account. Sometimes it's a small one. So the same way, guys, we want to realize our covetousness is idolatry. He said they wouldn't repent of their idolatry. They still want all their stuff. Do you know that when things kept getting worse in Germany during the Holocaust, how bad has it got to get for you to leave? So Albert Einstein left, right? He left early. He got out. Why did the other people not leave? Why did they stay? Yeah, it's their home. It's a nice home. It was their business. It was nice business. They're bankers and jewelers and it's all my stuff and I can't just liquidate it and I shouldn't have to. So it was their stuff. Remember on Sunday I told you about the monkey with his hands in a box holding on the marbles? So for a lot of people in the Holocaust, the marbles was their stuff. What happened to all their stuff? You can go through any number of Holocaust museums around the United States and, and even in uh, Jerusalem and see their stuff. All in piles. From the gold in their teeth, their shoes, whatever stuff they held on to. But their stuff held them to a place that was going to destroy them. They would not repent of their covetousness. Sometimes you just got to let stuff go. It's only stuff. Yeah? It's all about where, where are my hands? Are my hands holding on to God? They would not let go of their murder. It says in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. So how many of us are righteous? Okay. So if we have any righteousness, whose is it? It's God's right. He gives it to us, huh? So we don't have any, so let's get that settled. <clears throat> we don't have any that's on our own. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what's God saying? God's saying, look, the only way you know about me is because I came to you. You didn't come to me. You didn't go up into heaven. You couldn't reach up to where I was. So what did I do? I came to you. I revealed myself to you. I poured out knowledge and understanding where? On you. Everything that you have was something that I gave you, not something that you produced in and of yourself. It's something that is God-given, that God laid out for them. And with all of those things that God gives, the desire of men's heart is still evil continually. That's what we want to do. That's our bend. It says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. How do you talk? Like a dead man? Or your voice sound like a living man? Do the words coming out of your mouth sound like a sailor? Or, well, I don't want to pick on sailor. Sound like a marine? <laughs> or does it sound like Jesus? There's a difference. Just in case somebody told you there ain't. It says their throat is an open grave. Just, just death coming out. What did Jesus say? It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. What? 
It's what's already inside a man that defiles a man. The defiling part of a man comes out of his heart. Out of his heart comes that death, lying, cheating, whatever garbage is in man comes from inside. Inside us. And that's what he's laying out for us in Romans 3. It says, the venom of asps, that's a poisonous snake, is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Here's the one we are headed toward. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. What does the history of mankind look like? Aren't we good at killing each other? Exactly. We're, I mean, what was the first one? Two brothers, right? You know their names, don't you? Cain and Abel didn't take long, did it? Didn't take long. What about now? Do we still have brothers killing brothers? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's just rampant, the world, right? So when God looks at the world, what does he see? Mankind is swift to shed blood. That means he's running, he's headed headlong to commit murder, to kill. Now, if Abel's blood cries out from the ground, how much more does all that other blood cry out from the ground? It don't. Does a, does a, a man being, a woman or a child or whomever being killed, uh, that blood doesn't, Abel's blood cry out to God, their blood don't cry out? Their blood doesn't say justice? Their blood doesn't say, hey, that's not right, what happened? It's not okay? Somewhere, somebody ought to require that. They wouldn't repent of their murders. Sometimes they have people who will still kill people, even if they know it's people they're killing. Once upon a time, in a Nazi concentration camp, I bet the first time the guards shot a bunch of Jews, it was hard. I bet it was. But at some point, what hard no more. We just started inventing better ways to do it. And that's not the only way, right? There's lots of ways, guys, lots of ways we kill people. I ain't even said anything about abortion yet. But there's 60 million. That's, God's going to require that. Some, somebody's got to pay. They wouldn't repent of their murders. They're still committing murder. It says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Better description of the world today? There's no fear of God. How about better description of that march? The march for women's solidarity? That didn't allow pro-life women to march with them? That doesn't sound like solidarity, by the way. To me, there is no fear of God. Is there fear of God in the world's eyes? Man, not at all. None at all. They wouldn't repent of their murder. They wouldn't repent of their sorceries. Now, you guys have heard this before, right? The word for sorcery is the word pharmakia. The reason pharmakia comes to be known as the word for sorcery, which is the word by which we get the word pharmacy, is because. In the use of the black arts, magic arts, in those days, they used drugs. Same drugs we use today. 
They used hallucinogenics. They dropped acid. They did all that same stuff. It was all part of the practice. In fact, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, the word literally means dealing in poison. Pharmakia. <clears throat> so when he talks about they wouldn't repent of their sorceries, man, I've told you, I had guys in my office who won't repent of their sorceries, who say, I'd, I'd rather have this drug than Jesus. I've had that conversation any number of times. The guy is so buried in their addiction, they won't let go. And, and if you have family members or people that you've been struggling with who have addiction, you've heard it too. I love this more. I want this more. They would not repent. Here's what it says in Second Chronicles 33, 6 of what that pharmacia leads to. Listen. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums, with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Talking about Manasseh, king of Israel. Galatians 5.19 says, These are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, pharmacia, drug use, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Listen, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how to make that warning clear. Those who do such things. I've, I've always said um, with Howard a lot of times, one of the things I love about Celebrate Recovery is how we define ourselves. You define yourselves. I don't think we should be defined by our addictions. I don't think you should be defined by your diseases. I don't think you should be defined by your sickness. I think you should be defined by a relationship with D- Jesus Christ and you struggle with those things. Because if you flip it the other way, then I don't know if you're okay. You get what I'm saying? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm struggling, but I want Jesus more. I think we're okay there. Struggling and reaching out to Christ is a good place. Struggling and trying to carve out a space somewhere in your life to plug Jesus in, I don't know that's okay. Those who practice such things, those who habitually do these things, they... Jesus said, they're not in the kingdom. Those aren't mine. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord. They won't repent of their immorality. The word sexual immorality, pornea. It's the same word from which we get uh, porn today. Pornography comes from the word pornea. Sexual immorality. Any kind of licentiousness, any kind of weird, twisted, upside down sexual immorality covers it all. All of it. What does he say? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Wait a minute. Just a minute ago I said, how many of us are righteous? None of us. So you're all unrighteous. So how do you inherit the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is righteous. Unrighteousness will not uh, inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Everybody knows what this is, right? 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that word reviler, partier, nor swindler, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, and justified. How? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes me righteous. But I don't get to stay in it no more. I let go of the marbles. And I hold on to Jesus Christ. But they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't repent of their sexual immorality. They wouldn't repent of their theft. Listen, Romans 1, this is the last thing we'll talk about. Romans 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much ungodliness? All of it. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Who, by their unrighteousness, do what? Suppress the truth. Do people know God exists? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Just don't even... Yes, people know God exists. You ever think about your heart? What's it made of? Meat. What's it run on? Donuts. How long will it be? 70, 80 years? Yeah, there's no God. Go ahead, make me something out of meat that'll run on donuts, that'll pump for 70 or 80 years. Knock yourself out. Oh, we don't have one? We can't do it? You're kidding me. Look, men suppress the truth. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they know God. They know He's there. But they reject Him. They reject the God they know exists. For what can be known about God is plain to them. How? Listen to what it says. Because who showed it to them? God. This is God talking. God says everybody's guilty because everybody knows. Everybody knows because I've shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. No pass. People aren't guilty for the reality that they don't know God. They're guilty because they do not worship the God they know exists. That's what God's saying. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Man wants to worship. Man always wants to worship something. But fallen man wants to worship anything but God. And God has a day when it will be required. Still, they would not repent of all those things. They would not turn to God. It says, remember when we read in chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, they went under the mountains and cried out for the God of suicide to save them. You remember? Did you think about that? They laid underneath the rocks and they cried out, Rocks, fall on me and save me from the wrath of God. Does that sound like somebody who doesn't know who God is? But I'd rather serve the God of suicide than a God who would die for me and make a straight path for me. 
In Revelation 21.8 it says, As for the cowardly, the faith, faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoralers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That, by the way, is hell. Revelation 22.15, outside, that means outside of God. Outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices a lie. You can't come in with your hands wrapped around your sin. You've got to wrap your hands around Jesus Christ. Does that mean I don't mess up? Sure, I mess up. Do I lie? Yeah, I lie. I would venture to say, I mean, I don't know. I would venture to say I lie every day, but I don't say I'm a liar. I say I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and sometimes I struggle with telling the truth. You don't? Like when a phone rang at 8 in the morning and you were trying to sleep in, and the dude answering the phone says, did I wake you up? You all say yes, right? <laughs> oh, did Oh, yeah. No, I've been up for hours. I got up long before the sun, and I've been working outside and then changing water and feeding the critters. Oh, no. Why do we just spring to a lie? That's our nature. But Jesus Christ in our life begins to change our nature, right? We're not like we were, but we're not as good as we will be one day. Yeah? It's Jesus. We, it's different struggle than to say, I'm going to spend my life telling lies. All the time. I'm going to make my life practice lying. But that's what somebody does who suppresses the truth or the reality of God. They spend their life lying. There is no God. A fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. We've got to hold on to Christ. How do you define yourself? Define yourself by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we may fail or falter at times, but at the end of the day, I'm defined by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm defined by a relationship with Him. Why? Because I let go of that sin. I let go of that. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to lie. I want Jesus Christ. He's the treasure I want. And everyone during this time in Revelation who does that, though they might die from the breath of the horse, will still have the promise of the Scripture. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, how's it go? Will be saved. And I bet that person will say to God, thanks, I might not have done this any other way. Amen? Why don't you stand with me, let's pray.